Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians. Not Philippians. Colossians. It's not Sunday school. (laughs) Colossians. Man, I need prayer. (laughs) Let's do pray. Lord, you are holy. And you dwell in unapproachable light. There is no shadow of turning in you. There is no deceit. There is no fault. You are holy. And as Tim said, you're also merciful. And that benefits us enormously because we as a people are not holy. We thank you for that truth and we thank you for song. We thank you for praise and worship that we can do in song. We want to lift you up today. We want you to be foremost in our thinking, foremost in our minds. Help us, Lord, as we come off of a busy week and as we are approaching another busy week to set aside the cares of this world and this life for these few minutes to focus on you, to lift our eyes, our minds, our thinking to you, to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Help us all to do that. And I pray that you would work in our midst as we talk about in Sunday school, that uh, you use difficult circumstances to mature us. I pray that you would mature us. We give this time to you and we trust you. We look forward to hearing from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1. Colossians. All right, we'll try and keep that straight. This is our question I want us to think about just a little bit for today. What's so special about the Christian life? For those of you who were in Sunday school, the guy Barry was talking about Paul's life and all the things that Paul had gone through, the difficulties that he had faced. He had been beaten and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked and imprisoned, etc., etc. And if the Christian life was supposed to be cushy, Paul was doing something wrong. And so I want us to ask that question. Think about that this morning. What is so special about the Christian life? What exactly are we talking about here? What exactly are we offering? What's so special about it? So you're in Colossians 1. Let's read verses 9 through 14 together. Woody preached on these first few verses, but it's all the same paragraph, and I want us to cover it again together. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. So what he spoke on that last week and a little bit probably the week before and and uh, I was thinking about that. It says that in verse 12, he has qualified us, he has made us fit. King James says, made us meet. Qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I want to talk about that qualification a little bit today. What it means that that he's qualified us. <clears throat> First of all, I want to talk a little bit about what the what the inheritance is. What is that inheritance that's being talked about there? Well, a part of it takes place now. A part of it is right here, right? We have peace with God, and we can have that now. That's something that we can know in the present time. We have him, as Psalm 23 says, as our shepherd who takes care of us. We have that now. We can have that peace with him now. That's part of our inheritance, the present inheritance that we have. The Bible says he is an ever-present help in trouble, and we have that now. That's a good thing because now is when we have troubles, right? So it's something that we have now, but there are also aspects, major aspects of this inheritance that are going to be in the future, right? Think about what that means. Perfect union with the Father. Right now we have union with him. We know him, but in the, in the future, in glory, we're going to be entirely, completely, perfectly with him. He dwells in unapproachable light. There's nothing hidden, and there will be nothing hidden in our relationship, no blocks in our relationship with him. It'll be perfect union with him. It means that we will have freedom from our sinful condition that we have in this world. We can have that kind of freedom of this the things that drag us down. We, we have these, these bodies, this, this flesh that's connected with sin at every turn, right? We have that. And so we'll be set free from that. The inheritance is when we get to see Jesus face to face. And finally, we'll be like him. Not just know him by faith. Know him personally. In very real ways. Of course, we know him now. But then we'll see him face to face and we'll be like him because we see him face to face. So the inheritance is something that's now and it's something that's in the future. And it says that he has qualified us for that. And both of those aspects are very special about the Christian life. That's what's so special about the Christian life. I want us to recognize this morning also that that inheritance is unassailable. It cannot be taken from you. It's something that is yours. He has given it to you and it cannot be removed. It's unaffected by the hardship or the difficult, painful, impossible circumstances around you. That inheritance is there. And there are some here this morning that need to hear that. Regardless of what misery you're in, circumstantially in this life, what struggle you're going through, that inheritance is there and it is unassailable. It's still yours even if you lose everything else in life. So the question that I want to ask is how God has qualified us. How has he qualified us? In what way? Because if, if you think about it, and if I think about it, I don't always feel super qualified, right? The vast majority of times, I feel very unqualified to have a share in that inheritance of the saints in light. And if we're honest with each other, we would even admit with one another that Buddy, you don't, you don't seem so 
qualified <laughs> to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I hope we'd say that in love. But it's true, right? How has he qualified us? I don't feel it. How can it be that God has taken weak and sinful fallen people like us and somehow made us fit for that inheritance? How can that be? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. And to begin with, he does it by rescuing us. Rescuing us. There in verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Delivered us. Now, notice it says rescue, not escape. This is not the great escape. Okay, this is the great rescue. The difference being who's doing the action. If you're escaping, you're the one doing the action. Now, we do escape, right? We get to get out of there. But it's not we who are doing the action. He's the one doing it. He came in and rescued us. So it's him doing it. He's doing the work. He's, he's the, the subject of the verb. He's the one doing the action. Okay, we receive it. All right, well, so what has he rescued us from? He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, we live in a time where we have all manner of different electrical gadgets, right? Lights, things like that that can, that can illumine things, even night vision, right? You can do all kinds of stuff and, and see in the dark. But if you think about back before electricity, before batteries, before light bulbs, all that kind of stuff, when it got dark outside, unless you were going to carry a torch where you were going, it was going to be pretty dangerous. Could be, right? Could be robbers out there. Could just be some, you know, potholes in the road or, or whatever, right? So nighttime, darkness, before we lit everything up with, with how we've done with electricity, was a dangerous and scary and dark thing. Dangerous. Darkness. And so what kind of things come to mind? I mean, nowadays we don't fear the darkness as much. You know, when we're kids and growing up, or maybe some of us still retain some of that, I don't know. We, but a fear of darkness, right? It's, it's, it's not rational and, and just turn on a light and it'll go away. The darkness goes away and we don't have to be afraid of that, right? And so we don't think about it in quite the same terms as they used to, but imagine you lived in that day and you had to carry a little flame with you or if you were going to light things up, darkness would be a bigger deal. When it got dark outside, all travel would stop. You wouldn't, you know, run to small group three or four miles away, aside from the fact that you have to walk there. <laughs> but the darkness would be prohibitive, right? It's scary. But what are some of the ideas in Scripture that are associated with darkness? Since darkness doesn't seem to be a big, fearful thing in our time because we can just turn on a light, carry a flashlight, or when I run it in the morning and it's dark, I wear a headlamp. I mean, I can run with a light on my head. You know, we, we've, we've really got this kind of figured out. But in Scripture, what are some of the images, the things that are connected with darkness? Well, I did a, a quick search. Did you know that error is connected with darkness? Just being wrong, being in error, confusion. You don't know where you're going. You get turned around. Confusion. Disobedience. There are behaviors that Scripture talks about being the deeds of the darkness, and they're always disobedient. Because that's when you can do things that no one else will see in the darkness, right? Disobedience, being unpleasing to God in certain ways. If you're going to do that, you're going to do it in the dark because he can't see you, you think, right? Of course he can see you. 
but it's dark, and so no one else can see you, and you think he can't see you either. In a sense, in certain ways in Scripture, it's, it's likened to being asleep or being drunk. You're not all there, right? You're not all there. That's one of the aspects of being drunk. The decisions you make are not normal decisions. The information filters that you have are not normal. They're not functioning properly. You're not all there. And it's the same thing when, when you're asleep. You know, when you wake up from a dead sleep and you've got to do something, sometimes, yeah, you're right on it, no big deal. And other times you're just like, I can't shake out of this. The phone rings, who am I talking to again? You know, mom who? You can't, you can't figure it out. I don't usually do that to my mom, but we'll see. There's a sense of futility and darkness. You've been blinded, right? Wandering in darkness. Stumbling in the darkness. Dark, darkness is where deeds are done that we don't want anyone else to see. So this idea of darkness is a very real picture. Did you know if, when you read through the Gospel of John, we worked through this as a, as a youth group in Sunday school class. We went mostly through the Gospel of John. And when something evil would happen or there would be some great confusion, very often the word dark was mentioned there. When, when Satan came into Judas Iscariot to put into his mind to go do that, Judas went out and it was dark because that dark, evil thing that should be hidden had happened at that time. So darkness in Scripture is a picture. Now, in Colossians, we don't have the word darkness at all. When, when you're trying to understand a concept in Scripture, one of the things you need to do is look up that word in the book you're studying. That's step one to understand. Look it up in that book you're studying. So you do that in Colossians and you'll find that there's only one instance <laughs> and it's right here so you don't learn much. Step two is to look in other writings by that same author. And so since Colossians is written by Paul, we have various other books that we can look at. So I looked it up and we learned a lot about, about darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says that at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. You weren't just in the darkness. You were active agents of the darkness. Ephesians 5.11 talks about the unfruitful works of darkness that are displeasing to the Lord. Unfruitful and displeasing to the Lord. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's the fight we're in. That's what we're in the midst of. Romans 13.12 says the works of darkness, and listen to this, the works of darkness are orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. Now we look at that list and we think, well, some of those seem horrible, right? Some of them seem really, really bad. And others, jealousy, wow, you know, that, you know that's not a big deal. We don't want to talk about that here because it's not a big deal, right? But it puts it all in the same place. Those are the deeds of darkness. So that's... That's the place we were at home. See, there's a picture going on in our, in our passage here. There's a picture going on of an old country where we were kept captives and a new country we're going to, okay? So you've got this old country, and it's characterized by darkness, mystery, confusion, lostness, a sense of futility. You don't know what's going on, and when you do, you do the wrong thing. Error, active disobedience, orgies, drunkenness. Okay? And even jealousy, things like that. Interesting list he's got there. That's the stuff that goes on in darkness. But it's even worse than that. See, we were held captive there. Uh, and it was a terrible place. And it was characterized by darkness. But it also says it was a dominion. 
He delivered us from the domain or the dominion of darkness. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's a very interesting, the word there is actually authority. You were rescued from the authority of darkness. And so it's, it's, not, an, it's not the normal word for kingdom or realm or something like that. It's, it's this picture that this darkness that we just talked about, this evil influence, had free reign over you to do with you as it pleased. It was a dominion. It's not an organized place. It's not a regular kingdom with a king that you can, fo- you can learn his rules and follow his rules and you'll be good to go. It was like a, like a, a tyranny. I think some translations even have that, the tyranny of darkness. It was a place of, it was, it was like a, a totalitarian regime. They got to do whatever they wanted. The regime does whatever it wants and you just pay the price. And so that's the situation going on there. That's this idea of dominion. Jesus uses the same words in Luke chapter 22. He says, this is when he's getting arrested. He's saying this to the men who are arresting him. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The word power there is the same exact word. It's the same exact phrase, the authority of darkness. And so the men coming to arrest him, they were acting exactly in accord with this dominion of darkness, exactly in accord. They were, they were being obedient to it. They were parts of it. This is your hour and the hour of darkness. Paul spells out a little more fully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 what he means that an unbeliever is in the dominion of darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, that was kind of fast. Write it down, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God of this world is in, it's, it's like he has a flashlight, but it doesn't show a light, it shows darkness. And he's got it shown on you and you can't see anything when that thing's on you. You can't understand it. That's darkness. That's how it's having domain over you. It's not just that you were walking in disobedience and you could instead choose to walk in obedience. There's something going on, something very spiritual, very powerful going on here, that you are actively being blinded by the enemy to hold you captive. So that's 2 Corinthians 4.4. Ephesians 4.18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are darkened in their understanding. So the people who are in this land, well, first of all, let's identify them. Who, who are they? We're all born into that land. That's the land we were born into. That's, that's the, the kingdom that's our homeland. That's our place. That's where we were born. And it's not a pretty place. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So that's the plight of the prisoners in this hellish tyranny of darkness. That's what's going on with them. The people in authority over them are are crushing them, using them. That's the picture. It's not a good place to be. You're not patriotic about being in the kingdom of darkness. You're in misery. 
you're being held down, oppressed. And then God steps in. That's the good part. So that's the dominion you're in. That's the darkness. That's where we're all born into. This confusion, we don't understand, we don't know, we, we can't find our way, and the ways we do find are wrong. We actively disobey, we do things and try and conceal them from other people. We're in darkness. We're being oppressed by the God of this world, holding us down. And then, God steps in. He has delivered us, praise the Lord, from the domain of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, if I say the word deliverance, probably many of you here would think of a movie. (laughs) But when you say the word deliverance to a Jew, what's going to come to mind? A couple things are going to come to mind, and and it's, it's kind of the same theme. The first one is the exodus. The exodus is going to come to mind. So remind yourself of the story of, of what happened in the exodus. The people of Israel have been in Egypt for 400-something years, right? They've been there. They've, they went there, and they were honored guests, and they were given special things. As time went on, Pharaoh began to be jealous and scared and everything else. And, of course, Pharaoh's changed over that 400-year period. And they ended up being slaves. And then God comes and tells Noah, go tell my people. Noah, Moses. Tells Moses. Noah's in Philippians, sorry. <laughs> Tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And the whole thing starts, right? And so the people went from being in a place of bondage and slavery where they're being used by their captive hosts. And God steps in and through a series of plagues, miracles, delivers them out of the land through the Red Sea and out into Sinai, right? So they're free. They've been set free. So any time a Jew of this time period, probably a Jew nowadays, you mention the word deliverance, they're going to think Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And so I want you to flip to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus. All right, Exodus chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver, keyword, I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem, keyword, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The idea of inheritance there. And then I will give it to you for a possession. Another key word. I am the Lord. And so that's God speaking with Moses there. He's talking about the first major deliverance. What would have come to the Jews' mind when they heard this. Now, what is fascinating is if you look at the the Greek text of the Hebrew Old Testament, the first translation was done a couple hundred years before Jesus. It was done into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. And the same words that occur in our passage in Colossians 1 occur in this passage. Deliver, redeem, 
possession. It's the same theme. It's the same stuff that he's talking about. And I don't think it would be going too far to say that when Paul is talking about what he's, what he's writing in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that he's got this idea in the back of his mind. It was always on their mind. The idea of the deliverance. Exodus was a defining moment for the Jews. And so this is in the, this is in the back of his mind, I think. As is evidenced by, he uses very similar words, the same words many times, to describe this. So that's the idea that's going on. Deliverance. Now, think about, you know, you've seen the movie Ten Commandments. Hopefully you've read the book of Exodus. And so you've, you've got the idea of this huge, massive nation of people who were in slavery being taken. God came in, grabbed them, and rescued them right out of the nation of, of Egypt. Took them out into the desert through the Red Sea and delivered them and ultimately took them to their own land, right? But so that exodus was a defining thought, a defining idea for the people of Israel. And so when Paul writes, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, I think these thoughts are going on in the back of his mind. That's a huge deal. That's a defining moment, that kind of deliverance, okay? Now, secondly... If you mention the word deliverance to a Jew, what would be the second thing on their mind? I'm not certain, but I think it's the return from exile from Babylon. What makes me think that is if you'll flip over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a psalm that has a lot to do with this return from from exile. Now, refresh yourself of what happened. A little bit of of, uh, Hebrew history here of what happened and why they were in exile in Babylon. What happened? Well, they had grown disobedient. Okay? They, they, they finally got into the land, and then after a while, they had uh, the 12 tribes had settled everywhere. They had these kings. After a while, the northern tribes fall into their disobedience, and they go off into captivity to their own place, and they kind of disperse. And then you just have the southern country, which we call Judah, right? And that's Jerusalem and kind of south of there, kind of that, that area there. That's, that's Judah. And so Judah, after a couple hundred years of continuing on, now that they're the only, the only nation of Hebrews, after a while, they fall into such disobedience that God eventually comes in with Nebuchadnezzar, grabs them and takes them into exile, into captivity, into Babylon. And so, so they go to Babylon and they're there for 70 years. And so that's their captivity. And so here, into that kind of story, right, you've got these people who are in captivity they're where they shouldn't be. They're being, they're being held by their enemies in Babylon. I want to read this. This is from uh, Psalm 107, starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from out of trouble. And down, down in verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat where? In darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Verse 13, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Verse 19, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. So that's what's going on. That's, that's the backdrop. This isn't just some couple little verses that Paul finishes his prayer with. This is a big deal. This is huge for him. This is, these are nations moving around to different places, whole nations being taken into captivity, and whole nations being set free and, and delivered into freedom. This is, this is big stuff. But it's also personal. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Again, this is all because of the history of the Jewish people, and it's all because of these similar words that are being used that makes me think that Paul had this stuff on his mind. It's just too much of a coincidence that various that these words would be woven together like that in these different passages. So you're in uh, Acts chapter 26. Now, Paul is on trial, and he's before King Agrippa, right? So he's on trial before King Agrippa. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. Now listen again for the key words, okay? In this connection, I, Paul, journeyed to Damascus with with the authority, same word, and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light, which was just mentioned in verse 12, from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, delivering, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power, authority, it's the same Greek word, authority, of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I think this is, Paul is sort of sharing his personal testimony. In well, He certainly is there in Acts chapter 26. But even in Colossians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about his own salvation experience. He's reflecting back on what went on with the Exodus, what happened back there. He's, he's also reflecting on what happened with the return from, from the exile to, to Babylon. But he's, he's reflecting about his own life, and he's saying, those were massive, huge things that happened with realms and nations and people and physical places and lands and things like that. Those are massive things, but it happened in my life. And I was given the ministry to bring this same deliverance, this same freedom, this same rescue to other people. That's why Jesus called me. So God steps in and he interferes. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 says this. Since therefore the children, all of us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This he offers to you. 
deliverance, rescue. He offers that to you. He offers that to me. So rescue is a huge, huge thing going on. And it has to do with enormous things. And it has to do with your own heart and your own citizenship. Where are you a citizen? Where are you a resident? Are you a citizen in the, in the domain of darkness? Are you a citizen in the kingdom of his beloved son that we're going to get to? So that's the first part of, remember the question is, how did God make us qualified? Because I don't appear to be qualified in any way that I can discern. How did he do that? How did he fit us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, in, in, in light? Well, that, we've looked at what he saved us out of, but now I want to take a, a look at what he did with us once he took us out of there. Not only did he remove us from that situation, but he took us somewhere else. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transplanted us, relocated us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, he relocated us into a kingdom. There's a, a proper king. In the old place, in the darkness where we were living, there was no proper king per se. And it didn't really matter because he hated you. The, the forces in that world, the darkness, the confusion, the error that you were in was completely suppressing you. And you went along with it because you were in error yourself and you were in confusion yourself and you were in disobedience. And now he's transferred you into a kingdom. It's a proper kingdom with a proper king. Someone that you can give allegiance to. It's, it's a kingdom that you can be patriotic about. It's the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a kingdom that was prophesied when I spoke uh, on Mark chapter 10 a, a few weeks ago, about a month ago. Uh, I read these verses. I talked about Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, in Daniel chapter 7, we have a vision. I won't read it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Another vision of this coming kingdom of the Messiah. It was prophesied. It was going to happen. It was going to happen. This kingdom is coming. This kingdom is coming. It's going to happen. We've been relocated from that dominion, from that mess, from that destructive, dark place that we were all born into. We've been delivered from that and transferred to another place. It's a kingdom. It's prophesied. It's, it, it's God's plan for this world. It's God's plan for us. There's a king. There's a proper king in place that we can, we can follow and give our allegiance to. And, of course, that king is King Jesus. Again, prophesied from way back, all the way back in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 says this, verses 6 and 7, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So all the way back, God starts revealing this king is coming, this king is coming. He's going to set up his kingdom. 
It's the kingdom of his beloved son. And I'm going to rescue you from where you were. And I'm going to transfer you. I'm going to deliver you, relocate you over into this kingdom. The kingdom of God's son. It was prophesied all the way back in Psalm chapter 2. And where do we hear those words again? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Where do we hear those words again? We hear, we hear them. Where? The baptism. Jesus' baptism, first of all, right? Jesus is being baptized, and what happens? There's a voice from heaven. It thunders and says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? So God is saying, I told you I'm sending a king, and here he is. Now, later on it happens again in Jesus' life. Where is that? Transfiguration. A voice from heaven. Jesus has been transfigured. Right? He's, he's, he's shining like white wool, like whiter than anybody could ever bleach it. Right? He's shining. He's been transfigured. He's, you're seeing his glory. And this voice from heaven comes down, and it thunders again, and it says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he adds something. Obey him. Listen to him. Okay? So God is saying, I told you that I was sending this king. He was going to establish a kingdom. And then he's, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, This is the one. Towards the end of his ministry, right just in the last few days, he says, this is him. He's the one. This is the king. This is the king. And then in Revelation 19, 6. 6 or 16, actually, I'm not sure. I think it's 6. 19, 6. What does Jesus have written on his thigh? Anybody know? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's him in heaven. He wears that badge. It's clear. It's obvious. He's the one. He's the, he's the king. So that's the ruler, King Jesus. Now, anybody know what repatriation means? I had to find something with an R, and it actually works really well. Repatriation. <laughs> when, when the Beheimers moved back from, from Russia back to the States, we, were, we repatriated. We went back to where we really belong, right, in some senses. Of course, God took us to Russia. But we came back to our home, our home country, except for my wife, who's Canadian. I'm not taking her back there. <laughs> We're going to stay here. He didn't just pull us out of a bad place and say, okay, you're all right, and dust us off and stand us up and say, all right, you're good to go, and then leave us to wander wherever we wanted to wander, like vagabonds. He didn't do that. He took us out of that horrible, dangerous place and he took us over here and transferred us into his kingdom. And he put us right there in this safe kingdom. He repatriated. He relocated us. He brought us to where we should be. Where his plan has for us. He brought us back into his kingdom. Now, he rescued us for lots of reasons. One of them is so that we could be a part of what he's doing. Not just for our own safety. Certainly, he had our safety in mind. Still does. But he wants us to be involved in what he's doing. We get to be his children. Now, he finishes up. The biblical word for this whole story that we've been talking about is redemption. Redemption. And uh, we use that word a little bit. Maybe not a ton, but we are redeemed. Redemption, the idea of it, is that we have been we were in slavery, and a price was paid for us to secure our freedom. We've been redeemed. We were in slavery. The price has been paid. We've been redeemed. Now, Ephesians 1.7, which is a very... Flip over there to Ephesians. 
We've already been in Philippians today. May as well go to Ephesians 2. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Very similar verse. It says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So what's the price that's paid? To spring us. To set us free. The price that's paid is Christ's blood. He pays with his own life. Hebrews 2 said that that's the purpose he came. To set us free. To deliver us. At the cost of his own life. So we've been redeemed. Paul says we have this redemption. And we have it now. He delivered, us from the tra- from, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we had, will have, in whom we have redemption right now. There are aspects of it that took place in the past. There are aspects that will take place in the future. But we have possession of that redemption. We have been sprung. And we have that right now. We have it. So the fact that we are redeemed means also that we are forgiven in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in, who, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Hebrews 9:22 Under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 2:24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed and it goes on. We have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. It's offered to us in Christ. That's that's what's required in this whole redemption thing because The issue isn't just that we've been forcibly captured and taken somewhere against our will. The issue is that we're all complicit in that. We go along wholeheartedly. Look in your own heart and see. You can tell that you're an active rebel against God. When given a choice, I will submit to God fully or I'll do my own thing. In our heart is the great desire. I'm going to do my own thing. I get to call the shots. I want to do my own thing. And that is the defining characteristic of the person who is in the domain of darkness. We have that still in us. Now, God is working things out on us. He's making us new. And as we're growing in obedience to him, assuming that we are in this kingdom of his beloved son, then we're weaning weaning off of that. But we still have that rebel in there. And some of us are still active rebels fighting against God. So we need forgiveness. And it's all by Jesus. He's the one doing it. It's his work. Every step of the journey from captivity to this new citizenship that we have is Jesus' work. It's what he's done on our behalf. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And what's the, what's the great scheme? What's the theme, the, the, the plan? What's the main message of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. That he is, he is the top. 
He is the supreme one. He's the one doing the work on your behalf. He's the one that receives the glory. He's the one that the Father sent. He is the one. He's the beginning, the firstborn. All right. Now, for a couple of things that I want to mention here. What are we supposed to do in light of this? Assuming you've been transferred from this domain of darkness. I'm sorry you guys are in darkness. It's right here. I mean, I don't mean here. (laughs) There's a dividing line right here, and these guys are all in darkness. I don't mean that. I mean (laughs) domain of darkness, right? Assuming you've been transferred out of that, you've been rescued, you've been sprung, taken out of there and delivered into this new place. What are some things that are true for us? Well, one is that we are to give thanks for the work of God on our behalf because he did it. He rescued us. We should be giving thanks. It should be a normal part of our life to be thanking God for what he's done on our behalf. And two, we are to live a particular way, a new way. We have a new citizenship We are to behave, to walk in light, to walk in the light of that accomplishment, being aware of what God has done for us, how he's transferred us over, results in changes in our lives. I'm assuming you're back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's done what he's done to accomplish a purpose. And it wasn't just to spring us. That wasn't the end. He did it in order that we might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Wow, that's long. Let me summarize it. (laughs) 9 through 15 lays out what Christ has done in making us alive in him. And verse 8 strongly warns us not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, the domain of darkness, and not according to Christ. Lays out what this new life is to be like. I'm going to read it. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our uh, trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's interesting there in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. What do you think that word is? It's the same word. And I would like to give you an assignment. We're nearing the end of our time. Sometime this week, in light of this conversation, read Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 lays it out in an amazing way. This idea of 
Are we in the domain of darkness? Or are we in the kingdom of his beloved son? Where are we? And how do we live? And where should our minds be? What should our lives be like? So that's your, that's your homework assignment for the weekend. I'm going to lead, read a little bit of that right here. So we ask ourselves questions. In light of all this, in light of all that God has done for us, his rescue and his relocation and his redemption, in light of that, how then do we think? What does this mean? Is this just fun? You know, for me it's fun. Stories from the Old Testament, how it all works together. Is it, is it just fun? Well, I want to ask a few questions because I don't know who all's here. I can look and see who all's here, but I don't know where your hearts are. And I don't know really where your allegiance lies or where your behavior is necessarily. But I want to ask a couple questions. Maybe you're in the kingdom of light. Okay? You've been rescued. You've been transferred. You're over here in the, in the, in the kingdom of his beloved son. You're in the kingdom of light, but you're so overcome by your dark circumstances that you, you can't even hardly see the light anymore. You're so overwhelmed by misery and loss and pain and turmoil in your life. Maybe you've caused it. Maybe someone else is causing it. That's the person I want to talk to first, okay? You're having trouble even lifting your eyes to the king because you're so beat up by what's coming from over here. Colossians chapter 3 says this to you. Starting at verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Lift your eyes to the king, even if you're beat up, even if you're under the heel, even if you're oppressed. Circumstances are horrible, miserable. Assuming you are in this kingdom, lift your eyes to him. Live that way. That's Paul's message to you. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on these earthly things. They're distracting. Set your minds on the things that are above. Or, second case, Maybe you're in the kingdom of light, but you live like you belong over here. You're still acting out these evil deeds of darkness, things that you're trying to keep hidden, things that are consistent with this realm over here, the domain of darkness. Maybe that's you. Do you say that you're in the kingdom of light, but you walk like you're in the kingdom of darkness? That's addressed quite a bit in Scripture. We went through 1 John recently, and that's a big theme in 1 John. Well, if that's you, I want to read quite a bit to you. (laughs) Chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verses 5 through 13 are written to the person who is over here, but they're lured back into living like they were over here. This is their lifestyle. This is their default. This is what they want to go after. And there are strong words in there. Chapter 3 is very, very practical in that regard. You are living a lie. John's, John talks about it a little more pointedly in John. But he's saying, set your minds on things that are above. Put off these old dead things and put on these new things. Live this way. But there's a third option. There's a third possibility in a group like ours. And that is that you're just in this, in this kingdom. You're just over here in this domain of darkness. And, and maybe you're, maybe you're a good person. Maybe you, maybe you, uh, you know, are closer to the, the, the good side than the bad. Maybe you're not too much like Hitler. Maybe you're a great guy, a great gal. I don't know. But listen, this is the domain we were born into. This is where we start. There's confusion. We're hiding things from the Lord. We're, we're actively in rebellion against him. And it, it, it doesn't look the same for everybody. You can look at Hitler and say, obviously, he was actively in rebellion against God. But me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just a nice guy. I just you know, believe what I believe and whatever. Just leave me alone. I'm not like that guy, right? But there is a standard that is not that guy. The standard is God himself. And we sang about God being holy. Holy, holy, holy. Completely, entirely, utterly to the nth degree, holy. And that's the standard we have. And we do not measure up. I said this is not the great escape. This is the great rescue. Because you cannot rescue yourself out of this situation. And the fact is, in your heart, you don't even want to. Because you're a rebel against him. You want to be king. You want to be king. You don't want to submit to him. I pray that if that's you, that you would think about the debt that you owe that is infinite because of your sin against God. Because you don't measure up to an infinite standard. And the punishment is death for that. So that's the penalty that you owe. We've read a couple of places in here that talk about Jesus offering himself, his own body, his own blood, his own life, giving it to you so that you could be forgiven of that sin. Offering it, paying that penalty that you deserve so that he could rescue you out of there and deliver you over here. I pray that you would turn to him, that you would confess to him, Jesus, I I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And I know for the first time maybe that that matters. That is scary to be in that condition. To be a rebel against God is a bad idea. The end of it is death. The end of it is hell. Eternal death and eternal dying. It's a scary thing. And I pray that you would... Turn to Jesus and away from that kingdom and say, I can't rescue myself. I, I need a savior. I need to be forgiven. I've got this evil, treacherous heart. I need to be forgiven. I've got these, this sin, these sins that I do and the sin that's in me. And I need to be forgiven and trust in him. And he will. Wipe it clean. Wash it clean. He'll rescue you right out of that domain. And to deliver you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's called redemption. 
So I pray that for anyone who's here this morning and maybe they've never heard that, maybe they've just never responded, maybe they've heard it a million times and they just never understood. I pray that that person would just get with God. Talk to the Lord about this. Do business with Him. It doesn't have to do with me. It doesn't have to do with anyone around you yet. It's between you and God. It's going to affect your life and it's going to change the way you relate to others. But it's between you and God. Do that with Him. Talk to Him about that. I did it on a baseball field. I didn't even know how to pray. And He saved me. He rescued me. So I pray that you would do that this morning. Think about that. Do that. Respond to Him. Realize the darkness and the rescue that's there for you. Let's pray. God, these are big themes. And uh, it has to do with life and death. pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would help us to retain what we've heard. That we don't walk out the door and the first breeze blows it right out of our head and we never think about it again. I pray that you would take it, anchor it in our hearts, that we would respond in obedience, that we would respond to you, that we would ponder these things, that we would give thanks to you, that you went through the effort of rescuing us and delivering us, taking us to a new home. We get to be with you. Lord, I pray that you would do your good work in our midst. As we talked about in Sunday school and as Bob prayed about, Lord, I pray that you would use the circumstances that we have in our lives, which seem good or bad to us, use them to mold us into your image to make us more like you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes and our minds fixed on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I pray that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.